So one of my favorite books when I was a kid was The Cross and the Switchblade. Um, and I'm going to guess that this is a generational thing and that I might have been, I might be one of the younger people to have been fascinated by this book. How many, how many of you have read this and how many of you are familiar with it? Nobody in here read this book? This book sold like 50 million copies. <laughs> oh, I figured for sure. Are, do any of you, are any of you aware of this story? Okay, Fletcher. I've heard of the book. I've heard of the book. Okay, John. All right, so um, in the late 1950s, a minister, the Reverend David Wilkerson, um, saw, I think it was he saw a TV story about gangs in the boroughs in New York. And he felt this calling to go and minister to that group of kids. So this is this is um, a 1950s juvenile gang story, basically, but from a Christian perspective. And so he goes into, I can't remember if it was Brooklyn or the Bronx, because I knew absolutely nothing about New York when I read this when I was like 9 or 10. Um, and so Brooklyn, Bronx, whatever, they were kind of all the same to me. Um, and when I read this book, they were all like big and scary to me. Um, but it's about him kind of embedding in the gang culture there and preaching to them and trying to bring Jesus to them and bring them to Jesus. And I was completely fascinated by this book because it was a glimpse into a culture for which I had no frame of reference. When I read this book, I might have been to Atlanta. But that was that was but that was probably the only larger city than Nashville that I had ever been to when I read about these hordes of juvenile gangs with switchblades up in New York terrorizing people. And I was just absolutely fascinated by it because I had no frame of reference for this story. It was a community I knew nothing about except what I read here and what I saw on TV. And I, that fascination has stayed with me pretty much through my entire life. And I'm, I'm fairly confident that this book is the reason that I love mafia movies now. Because I watch mafia movies and I'm like, I don't get those people at all. I have, I don't, I don't understand their code of ethics. I don't understand the things that drive them. Um, I don't understand the, um, you know, the, the ethnic culture in their background. I just, I don't understand any of that, and it absolutely fascinates me. Um, I'm the same way with. Uh, stories about traveling carnivals and circuses. Um, I love like the food and travel shows, like Anthony Bourdain and Andrew, Andrew Zimmern, and oh, I'm blanking on his last name, but the guy that hosts this new show on Netflix called High on the Hog, which is about, um, it's, it's an amazing series about the history of um, black cuisine coming into America 
and how it came from different locations, you know, the Caribbean and Africa, and came into America and then spread through America. And it's just, uh, let's see, the guys, I've got the guy's name written down. His name is Stephen Satterfield. And it's amazing. And it you know, tells me about the, the, the story of rice or you know, barbecue from a perspective that I had no idea even existed. I'm just, there is no faster way to pique my curiosity than to show me a community for which I have no frame of reference. I am the outsider. I would be seen as the intruder. Um, and and my, my confession is that I, I, like these, I, I tend to like these stories best from a distance. Because it's you know it, because because if I'm not having to encounter that switchblade in person, it's much safer for me. You know these are you know I, I don't want to be in the mafia story. I just want to know the mafia story. I would not have the nerve to go travel with the circus. <laughs> but I, I had our neighbor has a a friend who was visiting, and I just like wound up sitting on their back porch with him the, uh, the other night, and he was talking about when he was 18 years old in the early 80s, he went to work for Barnum and Bailey. Um, stacking hay bales in an, like an airplane hangar to feed the elephants. That's what he did the entire summer after he graduated high school. He just, he said, I went to South Texas, and we picked up hay bales in a field that you never saw the end of, and that's what fed the elephants and told about going down to Mexico. It's like, we didn't just go to Tijuana, we drove 400 miles into Mexico until uh, we hit water. And I just, just sat and listened to the guy. He's just like, I have no concept of what it would have been like to be in that group of kids. The only, the only place where this changes a little bit for me in terms of that distance is food. And I, but even that took a long time. My, one of my favorite things to do is go and um, try ethnic foods that I don't, I don't know what's in them. I don't know what they serve. I just, I see a restaurant that I know I don't naturally belong in, for lack of a better phrase. And that's the restaurant that I'm obsessed with. And Nancy will, uh, she'll, she'll vouch for me on this. There's an Ethiopian restaurant on Thompson Lane near Nolansville Road. It's called Gojo now. But it's the third Ethiopian restaurant at that location. And I know that it's the third Ethiopian restaurant at that location because I saw the first one. And I'm like, I want to go there. I didn't know, any, didn't know anybody from Ethiopia. didn't know anybody that went to the restaurant. So I was too nervous to go in. And then it closed and another one opened. Same thing. And this went on for years. And finally, one night, we got so hungry. It was like, you know what? We're here. Let's go to the Ethiopian restaurant. And, and that just sort of opened a floodgate for me because I just, I'll go to the Ethiopian restaurant. I'll go to the Salvadoran restaurant. There's, um, you know, it, 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 we just got a new Indian restaurant in uh, Bellevue that serves different food from the Indian restaurants that I'm used to in town and we're going there every chance we get. And so I just, I, that's, that's my entree into other communities 
You can, you can take me anywhere if you promise me food I haven't had before. So we have spent the last four weeks talking about getting things wrong as individuals. This week, we'll look at how that sort of thing plays out in communities. And so here's, here's a rhetorical question. Um, are we more likely to make errors when we're part of a group or when we break away from the group and go out on our own? Well, let's, 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 actually, I'm, I'm, let's make it more than a rhetorical question. When, when, when you hear that, are you, you think you're more likely to do things right when you're doing them as a group or when you're breaking away from the group? I think there are more societal pressures, obviously, in a group, and you get swept away in you know, what they call group think, right. just to keep the group uh, peaceful. Okay, good. I think you can go down more uh, dangerous roads than if you were by yourself. Okay. My go-to example is Oxbow Institute. Okay. Tell, tell, us, tell us more about that. I, I know that term, but I don't know that story. Well, it's about a that. book, and it's a movie. Right. And basically, just to make it really short, uh, there's a group of men, they think someone has done something, the group starts to think that way, they hang you, and it turns out they were wrong. Okay. It's a mob thing. Yeah. So, so, so you, I mean, you talked a little bit about the societal pressures. Uh, what what are the what are the sorts of things that play into errors as part of the community or is or errors when you when you become the heretic when you break away in the community? And you get the alpha male, alpha female. It's an easy one. Okay. Want to keep them happy? Please <laughs> them as much as you can. If if that is indeed a factor. Sure. Okay. It usually is pride. How so? Uh, I mean, just like you, um, like I guess, well, I guess, like if you feel like other people uh, agree with you, you know, then you can, it kind of like builds on that. And so, like, you would, uh, a lot of times, that'll keep you from changing your mind okay. when you find out the truth. Yep. Good. I think as an individual, you can encounter a person and you can understand the nuances of the person, you know, however, it, it's simply person to person and so it's, it's uh, you can become friends. But in certain groups, if you identify with that group, you may find yourself captured into a certain view of some groups of people so that any person in the other group is your enemy or is unacceptable to you because that's the way your group feels about everyone who is in another group. Okay. And so you as an individual sometimes have much greater ability to be kind or understanding than you might actually be if you were thinking within a group. But the opposite could be true, because if you had a group in, in an ideal situation, our church community would be that, that this is a place where 
somebody might gently call me out from my prejudice or show me a different side or expose me to a different idea so that it might be possible for me to, in the safety of that community, explore some wrongs that I held right. and be able to understand a better picture. Right, well, and, and the, the community is a, is a way to call you to account for things that you just... Well, just plain teach me. Yeah. Expose me to something right. that, that I haven't seen before, that, that I've missed, mm -hmm. and in my own personal experience, that has been fairly huge. Uh, really close friends, even family members, certainly church family, that have expressed an opinion that I would have maybe questioned, but as I, because I had a relationship and I cared about them and I trusted them, then that was a source of information that it was easier for me to accept and process. Right, yeah, and, it, and, that, and that happens in a way that it simply can't when you're out on your own. So this, um, this issue is kind of wrapped up in um, what you might call the 50 million Elvis fans question. Because 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. And in pop music criticism, in the world that I work in, this is the idea that art or you know, music or a film or a TV show as popular as Elvis, as popular as Elvis Presley has to have some level of quality. It has to be good at some level or that many people wouldn't like it. Many people like it. It's, it's got to be okay. Right? In the ethical world, um, it's more if everybody's doing it, how wrong can it be? And so let's, let's, let's discount trends here, which is sort of everybody all at once going, oh, let's try that and see what happens, and then making decisions about whether or not that was a good idea. But in terms of the long-standing things, we tend to give credit, uh, or, or deference, I guess might be a better word, to beliefs or to practices that large groups of people have held or have practiced over long periods of time. And, and there are some really good reasons for that because if, because if, if they've been doing it for decades or for hundreds of years or if they believed that way, then it's clearly it has worked for them fairly well over, the, over that period of time or they would have done something else. Um, for Archie, we hear the voice of the people is the voice of God. Yeah. And so, you know, at, 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 the very belief, at, at the very least, if this is a belief or a practice that is deeply ingrained within the community, there must be a good reason for it. Um, either a lot of people have come to the same conclusion about this over the years, or it's something that has worked well for a lot of people. Um, and, and the weight of all of those people making the same decision for all of that time carries some weight. And it's, 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 a, it's something called social proof. Now, the flip, what's, what's the flip side of this? Your mother probably asked you a question that is the other side of this conversation. Exactly. 
If everybody jumped off a cliff, would you do it too? <laughs> and that's the don't follow the crowd, the think for yourself mentality. Um, a currently popular phrase that reflects this side. Um, do your own research. And that would seem like a good goal and often is a good goal. Um, and the American myth is full of stories like this, right? Of, of breaking off from what everybody else believes and everybody else thinks and following your own path and becoming the hero because you were the only person that saw the truth for what it was. I mean, do movies, you know, movie after movie after movie about that kind of person. And like I said, often it is a good thing, but there are some problems with it. For example, over-glorifying independent thought and that sort of hyper-individualism creates a refuge for crackpots and oddball ideas. Because if everybody can go off and break away from the crowd, then it begins to be hard to distinguish the people that are breaking off from the crowd because the crowd needs to be broken off from and the people that are just, you know, and the heretics, the people that are just going way off the deep end. And if you, if you, glorify, if you glorify the breakaway mentality too much, that's where your, your crackpots and your crazy ideas find root. Um, the other is, Another is that direct observations and experiences are not necessarily more valuable or more correct than secondhand information. And secondhand information or third or fourth, that comprises a lot of what we know. So, which leads us to the third reason that doing your own research and not following the crowd. Um, the, the, the third problem, which is that it's just impossible. At the end of the day, you can't, you can't do it all the time. You just can't. Um, as somebody that researches for a living, and, and I don't do, I don't do like hardcore statistical analysis or um, you know, that, that kind of deep dive medical research that probably some of you all do. But as somebody that researches for a living, I can tell you that doing your own research is way, well, it's harder than, it, 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 it's harder than you think, and it is way overrated. Uh, <laughs> because, for one thing, there's always people who know more than we do. And any, any research that I do invariably relies on the research that somebody else did before me. And this goes back to what we talked about last week, how do you know what my name is? Because at some, at some level, with everything that we, that we think we know, we are relying on what other people have decided before us, what other people around us have come to believe or have learned. Um, and so learning who to trust really is more important than doing your own research. Because one thing, it saves you all sorts of time. But for another, 
if I don't have the wisdom to know who to trust, doing my own research isn't going to help me at all because I'm not going to be able to separate the reliable from the unreliable. Um, as William James said, our faith is faith in someone else's faith. And in the greatest matters, this is most the case. You know, we believe in large part the things that we believe, whether it comes to Christianity or how to live our lives out with everybody else, we believe those things because of the place that we were raised, the people that we grew up with, the things that the people around us believe. Um, we'd like to think that we examine every important decision that we make about our lives, but the truth is we don't and we can't. Um, in most cases in everyday life, the answer to your mother's question is yes, you probably would jump over that cliff, and so would she. Now, hopefully, when it comes to things as important as actually falling off a cliff, you would not do that. But in, in most of the things that we do on a daily basis, we go with the people that we know and the people that we trust. Now, by and large, this is a good thing. You want to rely on the wisdom of people that have gone before you. That's the reason we have elders. Um, you want to you want institutional knowledge in your company. You know you want a few people in your. If you've got a company that's been around a long time, you want some people that have been there for five years, for ten years, for twenty, thirty years, because you want you want that institutional knowledge, you want the things that they bring with them from the way things were before that help you with the way things are. Now this has been one of the problems in the newspaper industry over the last 10 years as they've gotten rid of the higher salaries, especially at the local levels of newspapers. You don't have, you have cultures now where there's nobody left that can take you through the decades of, okay, this is, this is the history of the city council and this is how we got to this point. Because, you, because if you've only got people who didn't grow up in the community, who've only been there for a couple of years, they don't have that full context for how everything has been and how we got to this point. So one of the weird things about Nashville, Nashville has like these personality traits that run back to reconstruction. It's one of the reasons that buildings get torn down so much in Nashville because there is, a, there is a history that literally goes back to the 1860s in Nashville and when a building gets to 60, 60 years old, you tear it down and you build something newer and better. Because at 60 years old, a building is old old. It's not cool old. And so buildings in Nashville tend to not get to be cool old because since Reconstruction, they have the, the people that have run the city have wanted to build a bigger city, a better city, a more modern city. They've always wanted to be more than they were. And it's taken them, what is that, 160 years now to get to that point where like, they're finally building everything as fast as they'd always kind of hoped they were. But if you don't have that 160 years of history in Nashville, you don't necessarily see that. So, We all, you know, our faith is, 
Our faith is faith in someone else's faith. There's a, a, a quote from Augustine. I began to realize that I believed countless things which I had never seen which had, and which had taken place when I was not there to see them. So many events in the history of the world, so many facts about places and towns which I had never seen, and so much that I believed on the word of friends or doctors or various other people. Unless we took these things on trust, we should accomplish absolutely nothing in this life. Um, so it, it means that almost everything that we know comes from secondhand sources. And you've got to figure out how to determine the reliability of your sources. And when you're looking at reliability of sources, some of the questions that you ask are, has it proved trustworthy in the past? How often? Uh, what do you know about how this person or this source gathers their information and processes what they get to relay it to you? Um, does the source, does the person, does the media outlet tend to be, uh, appear to be biased or are they impartial when it comes to how they, um, when it comes to that information? And then do other people, particularly wise people, people that you respect, authorities in those fields, um, do they regard it as reliable? And so we all, you know, we all do some of this. Um, let's see, I'm flipping to see. <laughs> don't have my pages numbered. Um, so we all do some of this. It's the ideal that we teach. You know, you, you look at your sources, you figure out how reliable they are. Um, and these days, of course, stuff comes at you from so many places and so many different angles, and it's just this barrage of not just of information, but of places that the information comes from, that it's hard to even research, research your sources or your information as thoroughly as you would like, especially if it's being filtered, as it is on social media often, if it's being filtered through other people and other places, and you can't even tell where the information originally came from. So it's actually third-hand information, not just second-hand, it's third, fourth, fifth-hand. Um, and no matter how cynical you are, uh, no matter how much you question, no matter how much of your own research you do, how many news outlets you write off as unreliable, at the end of the day, you're still going to believe in something. We talked about this uh, a, a little last week. Um, it's the, um, the ideology. We had the, the quote from Alan Greenspan that you will have an ideology you need one to exist. Um, and you're still going to have an ideology even if you don't know where it came from. You will decide to trust in something before you decide, before you realize you're doing it or not. You will believe in before you believe what. For example, you believe in your parents as a child before you're even able to believe what they tell you. You're going to, or, or like more frighteningly for people in this room, your kids are going to believe in you before they believe what you tell them. Um, you will believe in your teachers before they believe, before you believe what they teach you. Uh, Josh likes to use a quote that comes at this idea from a slightly different angle. We become the stories we tell ourselves. And for the, for the purposes of this discussion, uh, a more appropriate version of that quote might be, we become the stories that we allow ourselves to be told without noticing. 
that we're being told them. So what this means is that much of what shapes my beliefs and my personality comes simply from the happenstance of my raising. I live in Nashville, mostly because I was born in Nashville. My family lives in Nashville. Um, I tend to question things because I grew up with a father who sat me down and made me question things. If I had something that I had to talk to him about, he asked me questions and made me think through them and would not give me an answer <laughs> until I had hit some kind of wall that he figured was acceptable. And then he might guide me a little bit, but most of his guidance was asking me the questions to make me look at things. I had this, I had this series of, of cartoons I'm trying, I don't remember much about this, but it was like an engineer. And so he had me do a, a series of like three panel cartoons about an engineer thinking through problems. So I questioned things because I had a dad that thought like an engineer. I like bottom feeding at estate sales and auctions because I had a grandmother who loved to do that. And when she came down, we would go off to garage sales on Saturdays. And so now I do that and I took my daughters out and taught them. Both, I, had, I had a daughter when she was seven years old. Both of my daughters did this. One of them did it in one day. She took $80 in Christmas money and in one Saturday turned it into, I think it was $90 in cash and an iPod Touch. Just going and buying stuff at garage sales and then selling it at a store for a profit. So it's like, we love doing that. I took my own granddaughter to her first yard sale on Saturday. <laughs> because that's what my grandmother did. Um, I am probably a member at a Church of Christ because I was born into a Church of Christ and had a generally positive experience in that culture growing up. Some of you may be here because you grew up in a very different culture and are here because it's a reaction against the church that you grew up in. For me, it's kind of, it's more of a continuation. My parents, we grew up, I grew up at West End. My parents were married at the old Otter Creek building. So, I'm pretty much here because of that. Um, depending on the church, um, Depending on the church that I attended right now, I might be much more or less comfortable with instrumental music, uh, women preachers, gay marriage, critical race theory, making political rep recommendations from the pulpit, or having a structural hierarchy that extended beyond the walls of this building. And if, I were, if I were in a different church, I would probably believe different theology because I was in that community. There's an element of chance to why we believe what we believe, but it still feels like we believe it because it must be true. Because we're back to the because it's true constraint from, I think it was last week. We think we believe things because what we believe is based in fact, but when we dig in, we often find we believe what we believe because of the communities we're in. And there are, there are two things, two things about communities. We tend to join, we tend to join communities that share common interests and beliefs 
with us, but we also tend to form communities around shared beliefs. And this has been one of the most interesting things about social media, both for good and bad, is that if you grew up in the 60s and 70s thinking that you were the only person that liked this kind of music or was interested in this sort of thing or did that, once the internet came along, you found out that those people were everywhere. And so you could become a part of a community that was interested in miniature woodworking or punk rock or flat earth. Anything you wanted, you could find, for good or bad, you could find online, you could find a community to be part of. And we like, we tend to like communities that look like us, that live like us, make about the same money that we do, believe like us, share common interest with us. It's called homophily, the tendency to like people who are like us. And you know, we, if, if you were in first service today, Cole was talking about how different the group here is. And in some ways we are, but in some ways we very much aren't. I mean, you, you, look, you look around this room, this room looks pretty doggone similar demographically. Um, the congregation, you know, we, we tend to come from roughly the same place, there are outliers, but we, as a group, you know, the, the majority of us have very similar kind of backgrounds. We are, we are probably not as different as we like to think we are, especially in important ways. Um, in the, the book that I keep referring to, Catherine Schultz's Being Wrong, she says, we do not just hold a belief, we hold a membership in a community of believers. Again, by and large, that's a good thing because we need, we need a place to feel like we belong. You don't want to just be off. I mean, you remember if you grew up feeling like you were the only person that was interested in something, you remember what a lonely feeling that could be. We like to feel grounded. We like to know what to expect. And so there are great psychological benefits to being part of a community like that. However, there are some dangers that come with that in the same, in the same way that we have uh, confirmation bias and things like that that are just built into the way that we learn. The same thing with communities. There was a, a social psychologist named Ash in the 1950s. He did an, a series of experiments where he showed a group of like seven or eight people and he showed them a set of flashcards. And on the first flashcard, it had a line. On the second flashcard, it had three lines. Label A, B, and C. And what he asked everybody in the group to do is say which of the flashcards, which of the lines on the second flashcard matched with the line on the first. Does anybody know this experiment, the Ash Conformity experiment? So you know, you know where I'm going with this. All right. A, B, or C? C? C, right. Now, except that B is in the same position on the card. Except that B, it B is in the same position on the card. Um, now, the, the trick with this experiment is if he had eight people, he only had one subject. 
of the experiment. The other seven were in on what he was about to do. He would show them a series of flashcards like this, and he would ask everybody to answer, just like I asked you guys. And after the first few, all of the people that were in on the experiment would start intentionally giving him wrong answers. And so they would say B when it was clearly C. And what happened was, the person on, I'm assuming the end, because you would, you would want somebody towards the end to be uh, the subject of the experiment so they could hear all the wrong answers, um, they started to give, you know, see, see all of a sudden didn't look so obvious to them. And the results went from about 1%, maybe less than 1% wrong answers when it, they were doing it by themselves or when everybody was giving the right answer, just suddenly the subjects of the experiments were getting about 37% out of all. And what was really weird, that happened in the 1950s. In 2005, somebody redid the experiment and was able to measure uh, brain activity during the experiment. And what they found was that when they did this, the part of the brain that handles spatial association, that sparked, that was active. And so they were looking, they were trying to figure out which was longer and which was shorter and which was the same size. But what didn't light up was the part of the brain that's associated with higher functioning uh, cognitive decisions and things like that. What they learned was the people who were giving the subjects of the experiments who were giving more wrong answers were not doing it because they thought they saw the right answer and were suppressing it because everybody else was saying the wrong answer. They literally saw them, it literally changed the way they saw the cards. They began to think that B was the same length as this card. And that was something that was going on with strangers in a room. Imagine how much more intense the pressure would be in a group like this, where we all kind of know each other. Some of us know each other really, really well, and we trust each other. So Catherine Schultz says that communities tend to do the following, tend to have the following traits that can lead to trouble. Our communities expose us to disproportionate support for our own ideas. Again, often a good thing, we've built these communities around the shared ideas. Yes? Fascinating. This has been a long time, but I think I'm right about the ASH study. In that group of eight, if you had your true subject, if you had one correct answer, so you have six that are incorrect, all of a sudden they go back to the same level of accuracy. <laughs> it only takes one other to not feel that you are the only odd man in house. Yeah. Which says to us, though, the power of speaking right into a group. It's not easy to do so. Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it has enormous potential to influence somebody else right. who is wrestling with the same issue. It depends on your personality. 
for the record, if I say one, say something, it's right. <laughs> All right, so this is the first thing. And again, largely a good thing, especially if you're thinking about churches. Second thing is, they shield us from the disagreement of outsiders. Because, you know, we're in the community, we hear what, you know, we, we hear what the community says before we hear what the outside says. They also cause us to disregard whatever outside disagreement we do encounter. And then the fourth thing oh, is, okay, yeah, they quash the development of disagreement from within. This goes a little bit of what you're saying and, and why it can be so tough to be that one in six because if, you, if the community has a very strongly held belief, it becomes hard to be that person and it becomes hard to let that idea take root in the community, especially if it's something very important. So let's look at how this, some of the ways this can happen in churches today. Um, and these are really rhetorical questions, um, but if you want to go there, we can go there. <laughs> Generally, at least in this area, you believe, I'm sorry, I said that badly. In, in the part of the country that we're in, you generally believe that your church is going in the right direction. Because if you didn't believe your church was going in the right direction, you would go to another one, and there are plenty of options. That's not true everywhere, but it is true here. Like, if you thought that the elders were taking us over a cliff, you would be down the street immediately. Yeah. But we're here, we think we're going in the right direction because people that believe like we do are here. So I flip into the next page. I gotta number these pages better. So the second is how aware do you think that churches that look like ours, by which I mean conservative theologically, fairly well off, largely white, southern churches are viewed by people outside of church culture these days. People think well of us, People, people, people think well of churches that look like ours. People think badly of churches that look like ours. Depends on the last three months of news stories. <laughs> if you identify us as you know, white evangelicals, you're going to largely negative response right. from the national community at large. Yeah. You also have a very different answer to that question 30 years ago. Than today, asking what I think others think, because I got a lot more exposure to what others think now than I did back then. Okay. All right. And 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 some of us and some of us do, um, but the tighter you get into a community, 
the less likely you are to understand how people outside that community see you. Because you know how you see you. And you think that you see you the right way. And so you tend to not necessarily see how other people really think about your group. Um, and if you do see how if you do see how other people think about your group and they think about you negatively, what do you tend to attribute that to? If you know that people hate churches that look like you, why do you, why why do you say that? Why do you think they do that? Ignorance on their part. Ignorance on their part. <laughs> okay. Anything else? Too much experience with people like this. <laughs> All right. They're confusing us with somebody else. Okay, they're confusing us with somebody else. Good. There's a, there's a scriptural uh, there's a scriptural reason we tend to go to too. Or that I, I should say I, I should say there is a scriptural reason that churches that look like ours tend to go to because I don't mean to be saying that we are doing this, um, and that is that. There's, there's a scripture that says the world will hate you. And so the scripture says the world will hate you. People hate you. Son of a gun, you must be doing something right. I mean, and that's, that is, it's like we, we may not believe that, but we've seen it, haven't we? I, I, I know that I've seen that from people on, especially people on the conservative side. And then finally, Churches that look like this, so I mean that's that's the third one. Being in being in the community causes us to disregard outside disagreement when we encounter it. And then finally, churches that look like ours are pretty clearly in an existential crisis right now. And I don't know, I don't know if you feel this, but I know. I, I, I confess that I feel this to a certain extent for reasons that I know aren't necessarily good ones, but it's still there, that we trust, in churches like ours, we trust each other less than we have at any point in my lifetime. And and I can't I can't put a finger on that, and if I was... And if you ask me to tell you a person that I didn't trust, I couldn't tell you because I can tell you the ones that I do trust because they're the ones that I hang out with. But I know that statistically the way that our side of the kingdom of God is right now, there is a lot of tension there between people that do not trust each other. But I would wonder if there might be some good to that because... I think the reason that we don't trust, and, and maybe I'm twisting your words. I bet you're is, not. <laughs> is because we know that there are people that are not going to be on the same page mm -hmm. that wouldn't want to do it the way we want to do it. And so we kind of fear that that force might be changing something that we want it to be the way we want to. But the other hand, 45 years ago when we were looking, when we were coming back to Nashville where we had both grown up and there were plenty of churches to choose from, we intentionally chose out of creed because there was the possibility of people disagreeing. It was the first time in my life that I had sat in a Sunday school class and had two fairly divergent 
opinions expressed and neither one were condemned. Yeah. And so there's always going to be a discomfort with that. But ultimately, that's much healthier than the church community that has, for whatever reason, agreed on this kind of rigid set of beliefs. And anybody that ever needs to ask a question about that is immediately mm -hmm. scratched. And, and that is one of the great ways that we... Could, could I add an amen to that? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. The um, <laughs> what, I, what, what Gail just said, I completely agree with and would describe it this way. Um, in some churches it might be seen as trust I think with the non creed I see it as holy tension and if you think about a rubber band it's pretty useless if there's no tension Yeah. if there's tension a rubber band can actually hold things together and that's what I think has been I, I don't think it's easy I know, no, I, I know is, I'm an insider right. and I think good about my other insiders right. but I think that's I think it's not always easy. Right. And so, especially for people that are a little more aged, it's easy for us. <laughs> I will not use the term elderly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's easy for us to not want change. Right. And so, it's easy to kind of be uncomfortable with this tension. But ultimately, I don't think you have a vibrant organization, and I don't think you have a place. Where people can can learn and change unless you have something. Right, and and I, and I've kept you guys too long, but I do want to say that I have not I have not always said this well because but because I have been trying to talk about congregations that look like ours. I have not been meaning to intentionally Im, imply that Otter Creek is is doing any of these, but in the same way that they are dangers for congregations that look like ours. They are a danger here, and they are a tension that we hold. And one of the things that we have to be able to do is to find ways to talk about those points of disagreements. In, and, and we really haven't had those in the last year and a half. And that's been, that's been one of the problems. I think for me that's been one of the areas, the reasons that I tend toward mistrust is because I just haven't had a chance to talk with people in a setting like this about the things that we disagree with. And so I know why I believe the things that I believe in. I don't necessarily know why you believe the things that you believe in. And like I said, I've kept you too long, um, so I will let you go. Thank you very much. <laughs>